Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, on the coast of Greece, there is an ancient monument that no one pays very much attention to, and yet it marks one of the most consequential battles in the history of Rome, or the Roman Empire, and really all of European history. It was ordered to be built by Augustus, first emperor of Rome, to mark his victory at Actium. At that place, a fleet loyal to him defeated one commanded by Mark Antony and Cleopatra, queen of Egypt. The result determined not simply politics, but society, culture, possibly even religion, for hundreds, if not thousands of years to come. With me to describe Actium, what led to it, and what came from it, is Barry Strauss. He is Bryce and Edith M. Bomar, Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell University and Corliss Dean Page Fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of numerous books. I should say this is his third appearance on Historically Thinking. He has previously been with us to discuss the death of Caesar and the historian Thucydides. That was way back in 2016. Barry Strauss, welcome back at long last to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Ella. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's begin after Philippi, which is, I think, right where we left off in our conversation about your book, Death of Caesar. So um, you say uh, briefly that the Antonii were successful but scandalous. Um, so Mark Antony's family is, what are they like? And how does this set him up in life to be Caesar's companion and general, and then eventually, well, go, go for it. So the, the Antoni, Mark Antony's family, they're Roman nobles. His grandfather's paternal grandfather had been a, both a consul and a censor, so the highest offices of the Roman Republic. His mother is a distant relative of Caesar, so Antony himself is related to Caesar distantly. Um, but there were problems with the family. So uh, the grandfather uh, was... Uh, a, killed in the civil war between Marius and Sulla. Not only that, um, he was discovered because of his fondness for wine, uh, because he couldn't resist going to a wine merchant, which is how he got caught when he was in hiding. Antony's father was given a command against the pirates um, based uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, and he did miserably in this. And uh, he earned the mocking epithet Creticus, the Cretan, not because he was successful over Crete, but because he failed in Crete. Uh, after he died, Antony's mother remarried um, a, a very louche aristocrat who was a supporter of Catiline uh, in his conspiracy in 
63. So um, there was something about the Antonii that wasn't quite proper. They made bad choices, among other things. They made, they made bad choices. Now we'll get they to this talking about sources, but how much of this is how much of this is later Roman historians projecting backwards onto the Ah, uh, great question. Great question. Uh, we we certainly know the crate that the 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 Creticus, the 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 uh, the Cretan is not projection. That's real. Uh, the supporter of Catiline is not projection. That's that's real. The grandfather and the wine story. I wouldn't go to the bank on on that one. I mean, that might be that might be projection. Yeah. So, how does Antony then become Antony? How does he become Caesar's one of Caesar's most trusted, if not the most trusted, lieutenant to Caesar? I wouldn't say he's the most trusted lieutenant. He is a, certainly a trusted lieutenant. Uh, first of all, there are not that many Roman nobles who are willing to support Caesar. So Caesar uh, <laughs> is, is not going to throw him away. Uh, Antony is a good field commander. He's not an absolutely, he's not a genius general, but he's a good field commander. He's more than competent. Caesar's happy to have his services in Gaul and in the, in the Civil War. Um, he's a problematic politician. Um, he ends up massacring Antony ends up massacring some people in the Roman Forum when there is a riot, uh, and Caesar has to discipline him afterwards. Um, but you know he's he he is he's the real thing. He's a Roman noble. He's a distant relative. Uh, it makes a whole lot of sense that Caesar would have his support. He's also a very good speaker. You know he's been trained um, in Athens to be a good speaker. Uh, he has a lot of military experience. He's fought not only for Caesar, but he's also fought in the east under Gabinius. Uh, he's uh, fought in Judea. He's fought in Egypt. Um, the guy has a lot of experience. You know, he's he, he, he's clearly a player. And so, when Caesar is murdered, about how old is Anthony? When Caesar is murdered, Antony is about forty. He's born in eighty-three, so Caesar's murdered forty-four. So Antony's thirty-nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's on the and then the comer Caesar's heir is his nephew Octavian. So, what's his personality like? What's his background like? Age, etc., compared yeah. to Anthony. So, Octavian is actually Caesar's grand nephew. Uh, his mother is Caesar's niece. It's Antony Octavian, unlike Antony, he's not a full Roman noble. He's related to Caesar on his mother's side. Um, and, um, his father was Gaius Octavius, um, who, you know, was a middle rank, important person. He didn't come from Rome. He came from, um, the city of Velletri, uh, so about 25 miles south of Rome, uh, to an ordinary person in the Roman empire, Gaius Octavius would have seemed like a big deal to a member of the inner circle of the Roman nobility. He was a used car salesman. He was a nobody. <laughs> That's um, what I mean, you're, you're saying that he's like, he, my God, he comes from 25 miles South of Rome. That's, but this is, this is I a mean, big deal to a Roman aristocrat that he's not one of yes, them. These, we cannot overestimate how, how snobby these people are and just how um, skewed their view of the, of the world is. Um, so, um, you know, that's uh, Octavian. He does have that burden. And when, uh, but as a young man, so um, um, 
his father dies when he's four years old. His mother remarries, as often is the case in the Roman nobility. She marries another Roman politician, um, a guy who's famous for his slipperiness and might have taught young Octavian a a thing or two. Uh, But the mother pushes her son to get the attention of her uncle, Julius Caesar. Uh, And the son is raised partly in his grandmother's home in Rome, Caesar's sister's home. And Caesar is duly impressed by young Octavius. He's clearly a very, very bright kid and a very ambitious kid. Uh, Caesar appoints him to some offices, even when he's a teenager, and he invites Octavius to come join him in Spain um, in the last campaign of the Civil War in the year 45. And, and the young guy spends six months with his uncle traveling around and duly, duly impresses him so that when Caesar gets back to Rome in the fall, the autumn of 45 BC, he names Octavius as his, uh, as his heir and successor. Uh, he offers him a posthumous adoption. There's no such thing as posthumous adoption in Rome. It's strictly illegal. But Caesar Caesar. He makes his own rules. So after he's assassinated um, and uh, his will is read, uh, young uh, Gaius Octavius, as he is then called, accepts the adoption. And he says, from now on, my name is Gaius Julius Caesar. By Roman custom, he should have been Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, but he refuses the title of Octavian. Just call me Caesar. And he is extremely ambitious, extremely talented, uh, and he has the X factor that meant so much to Caesar and in Roman politics. He was as cunning as they come. He was a natural Machiavellian before Machiavelli. Uh, he knew just what to do. Of course, he made mistakes. Everybody does. But... Uh, he had a remarkable ability to size up people and to do just the right thing. And he was utterly self-confident. You know, he's 18 uh, when Caesar is assassinated, 18 and a half, um, doesn't stop him. You know, the guy's going places and uh, no one's going to get in his way. What does it mean to be Caesar's heir? I mean, what does that get you? I mean, it's not a constitutional thing. It's It's not a... Yeah, it's a really great question. Uh, In theory, it should have got him a lot of money, but it doesn't because various people, including Antony, block the money and he doesn't get uh, most of the money. It gives him access to Caesar's supporters, but they're going to size him up. They're not going to say, oh, you have the name, you're the heir, we support you. They're only going to follow him if they see in him the skill uh, to be a new Caesar. And that's the remarkable thing. They do see that skill in him. Uh, It's not totally unprecedented for someone who's 18, almost 19, to uh, be the successful. After all, Alexander became king when he was 20. Um, But still, it's unusual, and the guy is precocious. And that's what's so remarkable about him, that so many people see this. He's been groomed by Caesar for the last few years, but none of that would have made any difference if he didn't really have what it takes, if he didn't have the personal skills to to, to get ahead. So, so in the end, um, there is a division of the empire. Um, there's, is this, is this the, is this the second triumvirate or is there, is there just first? It's the, sec- it's the second triumvirate so, in November of 43 BC. So, so Octavian, um, feels, I, I suppose that Octavian feels weak enough. So he just can't claim things. He feels that he has to divide the rep- the Republic as it is with two other people. That is that the, the choice he has? Yeah. I mean, I, 
Absolutely. Octavian now is the master of, I don't know, I don't know exactly how many, but let's say 20 legions. But Mark Antony has as many, if not more legions of his own. So uh, Octavian does not have the power to simply clap his hands and get what he wants. He has to make a deal with, with Antony. And there is a third member of the triumvirate originally named Lepidus, another big supporter of Caesar who has legions of his own. So um, it's wise to do that. It's also uh, politically wiser to have three people than to have two people because the two people might go right after each other with the third person there. What does it mean to have legions? I've never really understood that. They're loyal to him. Okay. They swear loyalty to to him as, as the leader. So they're uh, swearing a personal oath to the, him as leader, rather in addition to their oath to the Republic or in just oh. to, to him? <sighs> you know, I don't know that they swear an oath to him at this point, mm-hmm. uh, but they know that he's the paymaster. That's okay. And they know that, for, they know that their fortune depends on him. Ultimately, uh, Octavian does have his legion swear an oath to him, but I don't know that they've actually done that at this point. But then Octavian has the problem. At, at, if, if Is Antony still holding on to his cash? So Octavian has that problem of supplying his legions, the problem that all these guys, Sulla, Marius, Pompey, um, they always had the problem, how am I going to pay these guys and keep them happy? Right. So Octavian right. has that no. problem. He does, though he's gotten additional bankers, backers, including bankers. Uh, who are funding him? So he's not completely without wealth. Not completely without without wealth, but it is an issue. It is an issue. So Antony goes east, and what does he get up to? So after Philippa, yes, Antony goes east. They divide the empire, and Octavian gets most of the west, including Italy, and Antony gets all of the east. And um, he really has two tasks in the east. One is to settle the frontier. There are all these, a series of frontier kingdoms on Rome's eastern frontier. And it's a frontier with the only empire left standing, the only peer competitor, and that's the Parthian Empire. Um, So Antony has to settle that frontier. The second thing he doesn't have to do, but he wants to do is he wants to go to war with the Parthian Empire because his mentor, Julius Caesar, was going to go to war against Parthia when he was assassinated. And the reason Caesar was going to go to war against Parthia was because an earlier Roman general, Marcus Crassus, had attempted to do so, and he'd been utterly destroyed uh, in the Battle of uh, Cari in uh, in 53. And so uh, revenge is on uh, on the agenda, but also building up one's own reputation and getting an enormous amount of wealth to allow you to come back to Rome and be top dog. So that's what what Antony wants to do in the East. So very early on, there's this interesting connection made between Antony and Dionysus. So could you explain yes. the, the importance of Di- the call right. of Dionysus in the East and what it right. means for Antony to be a Dionysus? Because I, I love this insight right. into, there's almost an ideo- ideolo- ideological thing at work here. Indeed. So we think of Dionysus as the god of wine, and he was the god of wine. But uh, for the ancient world, particularly in the East, he was not only the god of wine, he was also the god of liberation. So he'd be dear to revolutionaries. But uh, tradition has it that he had conquered Asia. And so when Alexander went to conquer Asia, um, he made himself the follower of Dionysus. 
And there is a tradition of following Dionysus. Mithridates, the great rebel against Rome, um, had called himself a new Dionysus. Uh, King uh, Ptolemy uh, Alites of Egypt had called himself the new Dionysus. Spartacus had associated himself with Dionysus. And now Antony, uh, portraying himself as a patron of the East, he too accepts the title of Dionysus. So he's 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 sending a message, right? He might even believe he's sending, it. He's sending a message. He's sending a message, first of all, to Easterners that he's on their side. And secondly, that he's a great conqueror and he will be the conqueror of Asia. At some point along the way, well, actually, at a very specific point in, uh, in Tarsus, of all places, uh, shades of Paul, uh, right. um, he runs smack dab, uh, like <laughs> stepping over a, a garden rake into Cleopatra. Um, so he has met Cleopatra before, but now he, I, I presume being associated with Caesar, but now he really meets Cleopatra. So Cleopatra, uh, go. <laughs> Cleopatra, you know, could easily take over the conversation. She's one of the most fascinating, uh, women in history and certainly, uh, you know, in, in a, in a small club of, of female rulers, she she is a ruler. She's the queen of Egypt. And if she had won at Actium, we'd probably consider her in the same category as Catherine the Great or Elizabeth uh, I. Or, uh, we wouldn't think of her as a sex toy, as, as Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, she was very charming, though perhaps not conventionally beautiful. Uh, she was the queen of Egypt. She was the, the heir of the Ptolemies, a 300-year dynasty that ruled Egypt. Um, and she was uh, brilliant. She was a strategist. She was uh, Machiavellian like Octavian. Um, and she had six, she knew that her kingdom was on very shaky grounds. Uh, the only reason that Rome had not uh, annexed Egypt um, was that uh, no one Roman could stand the idea that any other Roman should dominate Egypt. Why was Egypt so important? It was the wealthiest place in the ancient world. Uh, because of the annual flooding of the Nile, Egypt had uh, the wealthiest uh, agricultural uh, resources of any place in the ancient Mediterranean. And there was an enormous treasury, just an absolutely enormous treasury. The Ptolemies were, 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 immense, were filthy rich. Um, so Cleopatra comes to uh, Antony, and she basically offers herself to Antony. And she's got three things going for her. Uh, or four, depending on how we count. So she's she's the queen of Egypt. She has access to this money and power and tradition. Um, she is herself uh, beautiful and charming, or at least charming. Um, she um, is a master uh, at propaganda, and what she says to Anthony is, if you join up with me, uh, you Dionysus, me Isis, uh, or you Dionysus, me Aphrodite, and you, you Osiris. Uh, we will be a pair of gods and goddesses to present ourselves to the Eastern world. And finally, last but by no means least, she is the former mistress of Caesar. And she has Caesar's son, or so she says. After having her, her affair with Caesar, she gave birth to a son named Ptolemy uh, Caesar. Caesar never acknowledged the child, but he allowed Cleopatra to call him Caesar and he put up a statue of Cleopatra in Rome 
in front of the temple to his ancestral goddess, Venus the Mother, the mother of the Roman people, the mother of the family of Julius Caesar. Some sources say, as we in the business put it, um, that the statue showed her carrying, holding the baby, uh, Caesarian, in her arms. So, you know, if it walks like a Caesar and talks like a Caesar, it is a Caesar. So, um, it Anthony can't be Caesar's heir, that belongs to Octavian, but he can have Caesar's woman and perhaps, uh, uh, at least by association, Caesar's son. So there's a lot going for him in this association. They start this affair. He spends the winter in Alexandria. She gets pregnant by Antony and gives birth to twins, a boy and a girl. But he is currently, is he currently married uh, at, at that time? Um, so it's a it's an unusual affair because in, many, in, in most every way, he is her inferior. I mean, in terms of like yes. royalty and everything. On the other hand, he has power that she does not. So they, yeah, they have a sort of well, seesawing social political relationship. Well, Caesar was her inferior as well. Yeah, that's but, right. You know, yeah. So, but she she makes a point of only sleeping with people she considers to be the most powerful men in the world. <laughs> that's right. um, so she's banking on Antony. He's married to Fulvia at the time. A Fulvia dies, some say, of a broken heart. Um, but he's not going to marry Cleopatra. Um, instead, he engages in a new uh, political marriage with Octavian's sister, Octavia, who herself was married, but conveniently also is widowed. Her husband dies, um, and they're both available, Antony and Octavia. And so um, what in what looks like that it could be a civil war, a battle between Octavian and Antony, instead... Um, Antony marries Octavia, and all of Rome breathes a sigh of relief. Now, it, it can see the short-term benefits to Antony, but it's thinking through the book and through the history, in many ways, that is a very much of a long-term mistake. Um, I think so. Because Octavia yeah. is a firecracker. Well, as we'll see, she's smart. She's capable. Um, actually, all of Antony's uh, wives and mistresses were extraordinary women. Um, yeah. and, and the fact, of course, as we'll see, is that Octavian uses his sister very much as, um, well, it, well, we'll get to the, the way in which she becomes the justification, really, for the next war. But Right. Yeah. So uh, the sources almost all say that Octavia was the perfect house Roman matron, the per- perfect housewife, utterly loyal to her husband, Antony never a backward glance to her birth family or her brother. And um, it's only because she's betrayed by the evil Antony uh, and the vixen Cleopatra uh, that uh, she's mistreated in the end. But Tacitus reports a different story, an alternate version, that this was a fatal connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I go with that. I can't believe that the sister of Octavian and the daughter of Atia um, was uh, an innocent, a babe in the woods. Um, And there's lots of evidence that she was a political operator in her own right. She uh, uh, brokers a deal uh, between her husband and her brother. It almost comes to war again two years after the marriage. She brokers a deal, and lo and behold, the deal is more favorable to Octavian than it is to Antony. Um, To me, it kind of smells. So, yeah, it's problematic, very problematic marriage. 
you describe something which uh, I'm, I'm no Roman historian. I never heard of this thing before. It's an ovation. Could you describe yeah. the reason for the, the, uh, the what the treaty? The, this this is the peacemaking that you just referred to that I believe that led to this this ceremony, and it's right. it's it's worth knowing about and understanding what it meant. Well, you you ovation is a lesser triumph to to um, uh, celebrate a triumph. You have to have defeated an enemy in a major victory, and you have to be acclaimed by your men, and the Senate has to vote you a triumph. But there is, and a triumph, you you march into Rome with your army. Normally, you can't bring troops into the city of Rome. Uh, it's a peace zone. Um, and you uh, are acclaimed by the people, and you march up to the um, Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill, and you sacrifice to Jupiter. Um, and you wear certain clothes, a purple robe, etc., and so forth. Uh, there is a lesser ceremony to um, uh, to commemorate uh, a success, but one in which you don't defeat a foreign enemy, you don't have that great a success, uh, and so you can't uh, march through Rome with your troops in the same way. You don't wear the purple robe. It's called an ovatio or an ovation. Ovation. So when Crassus uh, defeated Spartacus, for instance, he can't have a triumph because defeating slaves is beneath the dignity of a Roman. You don't get a triumph for that, but he is able to celebrate an ovation. Hmm. So everything seems, well, everything seems placid temporarily, and Octavian shows that he's sort of human by falling for a woman named Livia, uh, just as yes. hard as Antony f- flow for Cleopatra. Could you describe, because this also fits into all this soap opera stuff. This is, this is you know, the, yeah. the prequel to uh, Cla- I, Claudius. It is the prequel to I, Claudius. So um, uh, Octavian is married to Scribonia, who is uh, related to Sextus Pompey, the son of uh, Pompey the Great, who has his, he's carved out his own little naval kingdom based in Sicily, and he has the power to cut off the grain supply to Italy because Octavian doesn't have a navy. Um, And so uh, to uh, deal with that front, he marries Scribonia, uh, who we are told, she's a Roman noble, uh, but she's not very dishy, we're told. She's a bit older. Um, But she she gets pregnant, uh, and uh, while she's pregnant, Octavian falls in love with Livia Drusilla. Now, Livia Drusilla um, comes from the absolutely very top ranks of the Roman nobility. Uh, this would be ma- like marrying a prince of the House of Windsor. It doesn't get any higher. She is inconveniently married to somebody else and also pregnant. And she has a son by the somebody else. Even more inconveniently, uh, her husband had been an enemy of Octavian earlier. And she and he had, with their baby son, had to flee, run for their lives and flee Italy uh, from Octavian's troops. But never mind. Um, they're all on the same side now. Uh, everybody is copacetic. And... Um, when um, the day after uh, Octavian's wife Scribonia gives birth to a daughter, Julia, he divorces her. Uh, and a few days later, uh, well, uh, Livia is divorced as well by her husband. And her husband gives her away at the wedding uh, where she marries Oct- Octavian. She's six months pregnant. And three months later, she gives birth to her second son. 
Um, and uh, they all live happily ever after. <laughs> and uh, which which uh, who are the sons? Because they'll become they'll become important later. So the the second son is named Drusus, um, and his older brother is Tiberius. And ultimately, Tiberius becomes the heir to the throne. He is Octavian's heir. When Octavian becomes Augustus, when he dies. He turns the empire over to Tiberius, a long soap opera in its own right. Um, yeah, that's said a mouthful, Professor. So uh, Octavian then manages to consolidate power despite this, despite what should have been an own goal. I mean, it, right. it should have been absolutely fatal. This I, you can see his skill <laughs> as a as a as a manipulator, no politician. That he it should have been a self inflicted, you know, not just shooting himself in the foot, shooting himself in the stomach. Um, really, but he summons, not only does he get through that, he consolidates power in the West. He takes over Gaul, he He takes over Spain. So how how does he do this? Well, you know, um, he kind of steals Gaul from Mark Antony. Um, Antony's general in, in charge of Gaul dies and, uh, Octavian takes it over for safekeeping, um, quote unquote. Uh, and then there's this near war between Antony and Octavian. That's a deal is brokered by Octavia. Um, and Oct- Antony is willing to tolerate this uh, because he's putting all his eggs in the basket of the East. He wants a victory against the Parthian Empire. And Octavian promises him 20,000 legionaries from Italy. In theory, Antony has a perfect right to recruit uh, legionaries from Italy, but in practice, since possession is nine-tenths of the law and Octavian possesses Italy, uh, Antony can't recruit legionaries there without Octavian's um, permission. What Antony gives Octavian, so Octavian says, okay, I'll get you 20,000 troops, and Antony says, in return, I'll give you 120 warships, which uh, Octavian needs to protect himself from Sextus Pompey. And Octavian says, Antony, I don't have 20,000 troops to give you now, but trust me, I'll get them to you in a year or two, which was a big mistake on uh, Octavian's, uh, on Antony's part, because Octavian's the last guy you want to trust for, for anything. And I think Antony underestimates him, and no doubt his wife uh, has something to do with him underestimating her brother as well. It's why I agree with Tacitus that it was a fatal connection. Mm-hmm. This, um, and in the process, then he's able to defeat Sextus Pompey, uh, his old brother-in-law, I guess. Um, and, yes. and, uh, or at least in, in, in law at any rate. In law at any rate. Um, and it, it's, this brings us to Agrippa and it, it, it struck me reading this, that Augustus has the talent of great leaders for attracting extremely competent people who don't want your job. Uh, That's right. Caesar was not that good at that. Augustus is much better. I can only compare him to um, George Washington and Napoleon and the ability to attract talent who are happy to serve, but not to usurp. Yes. Although Napoleon was betrayed by Talleyrand, there you go. So that well, anyone yeah. could be. He betrayed I, everyone. So that, that's that's. Yeah, I, I wish. Yeah, uh, I mean, but Washington, I think, is really apt because, like Washington, Octavian had huge self-control, absolutely huge self-control, and he knew what he wasn't. He knew his limitations. Mm-hmm. He knew that he wasn't a great general. 
Uh, he was a great strategist, but not a great general. And the guy was courageous enough to go into battle, but he just was not great at leading troops. Um, he also chose wisely. Uh, Agrippa was a boyhood friend, so he'd known him for a long time. Agrippa owed him because Octavian had had uh, gotten his brother, Agrippa's brother, amnestied by Caesar after he had fought for Pompey. Agrippa also conveniently for Octavian was not a member of the Roman nobility. So it'd be very difficult for him to make a claim to supreme power. But Octavian also made sure to constantly flatter Agrippa and give him just enough goodies that Agrippa wouldn't be discontented. But um, you're right, Caesar was not good at this at all. He was not able to restrain his own ego. Um, so uh, the, the fact that Octavian could is a big difference. Maybe he learned from his great uncle's uh, mistakes. But this is one of the great Batman and Robin combos in history. One of the great number one, number two combos. It's, it's quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. And Agrippa defeats the sexus Pompey. I mean, it does. you can't overemphasize the importance of keeping a, a free grain trade to Rome. Um, right. You can, that's the basis of your power. Absolutely. And also he builds a navy. Octavian didn't have a navy. Uh, and he, Agrippa lays the foundations for the Imperial Roman Navy. This is really, really important. So Antony, meanwhile, is busy in the East and it's, right. uh, so what's he doing? And what's, what are the, there seem to be, by this time, there are two different visions that are being developed of what Rome will be like right. in the future. Yeah. So, um, Octavian is using Italy as his base uh, his base for what? Well, he, he's claimed all along that he wants it all. Uh, but whether he'll get it all is unclear. But Italy is not a bad base. However, it cannot match the wealth of the East. That's where the real money is. Um, and Antony knows it. He plans to use the East as his base. Uh, he makes war on the Parthian Empire by attacking a Parthian client state uh, in northwestern, what is today northwestern Iran. It's a state called Media Atropatine. Um, he's got an army. He's raised money from taxes. He has some money from Cleopatra. Uh, and he fails. His campaign against Media Atropatine Atropatine is a failure, partly because he is betrayed by his ally, the king of Armenia. And he loses, the sources claim he loses 25% of his army, which is huge. For once, the claim of the sources is credible. He might have lost that much of his army. And he, uh, he has a heroic retreat back to the Mediterranean, but it is a retreat in defeat. And it's one of the worrisome things about Antony that he keeps having his finest hours in retreat. This is not the best thing for a general. But Cleopatra now helps him bind up his wounds and she finances him to rebuild his army. He's got to rebuild it with recruits from the east. These are Roman citizens, sons of Roman citizens, some not so Roman citizens uh, to be trained as legionaries. And he conquers Armenia, which is not nothing, and gets ready for a new campaign against Parthia. He's doing pretty well. Um, and meanwhile, he and Cleopatra are building up a massive fleet, uh, a fleet that has state-of-the-art warships that have reinforced prows. So they're particularly good at uh, ramming. 
He's also got a small but significant number of super tankers, we might call them, uh, really big ships that are good for breaking barricades at the uh, in enemy harbors and might make it possible for him to invade Italy and attack one of the two fortified cities in the south, uh, Brindisium or uh, Tarentum. So he's prepared either for a war on the west or a war in the east, but he is unable to go back to make war on Parthia again, because now Octavian strikes and Octavian declares war, but in his own peculiar, brilliant manner. So um, is this, at what point is Octavia, Antony's wife, Octavian's sister, uh, at what point is she declared sacrosanct? Because this is the, the I didn't I, I never realized that this happened and or the implications of it. Is this before yeah. this is this the declaration of war leads from that, does it not? Or the declaration of war comes in comes afterwards, yeah. uh, in thirty thirty-two. Uh, bef- I forget the exact year, but before this already, uh, I think in as early as thirty-five, maybe. Octavian has declared his sister sacrosanct, and that that um, seems to me the greatest stroke of genius in the whole the whole thing. It, it just it's a it's a beautiful move. It is a beautiful move, and supposedly he he tells her to divorce her husband, and she makes a show of saying no, I would never do that, which makes me think the whole thing is a fake, mm-hmm. uh, and that she and her brother are you know colluding to uh, make this public. So, what does it mean stand? to be made sacrosanct? It means that anyone who harms you can be killed with with impunity. Uh, He's an enemy of the Roman state. Um, She's also now in charge of her own property. Uh, He also makes Livia, his wife, sacrosanct because he doesn't want her angry at him (laughs) at the same time. So the two of them are now sacrosanct. Um, And uh, they're both, uh, you know, untouchable. Uh, And they each get a statue. Uh, there's only been one woman in Roman history who's ever been honored with a statue before Cornelia, the mother of the Gracchi. And she was the daughter of Scipio Africanus, pretty important person. So, um, you know, Octavian is really uh, raising his sister to, to a very high position. But make no mistake about it, there are a lot of Roman senators who see right through this. And they don't like Octavian. But they vote you know, for He's him. not one. Uh, this is this is a, this is a this is a senatorial declaration. I assume there was a voice vote. Uh, he's the guy with the legions. Yeah. <laughs> he's the guy with the legions. He's the guy who's in charge of Rome. He's put down a rebellion in in Italy, the so-called War of Perusium, the Parasine War. He's defeated Sextus Pompey. You don't mess with this guy. Yeah, and so by at this point, he's painted Anthony into a corner. Um, does Anthony realize this? Uh, he's painted Anthony in a corner, but you know, from the from the point of view of Octavian, he's painted Anthony in a corner. Right. But Antony, Antony, I think that from Antony's point of view, his big problem is that he's lost the battle. He's lost this campaign against uh, against Parthia. Mm-hmm. He's got the fleet. He's got the money. He's got Cleopatra. He's got the wealth of the East. Uh, I don't know that Antony feels that he is at a disadvantage against Octavian. I think that Antony feels um, 
that he can do pretty well. Plus, I don't think Antony understands how good a General Agrippa is. I think Antony suffers from the the arrogance of the Roman nobility. Agrippa's a nobody. He might even be Etruscan. Who is this guy? Who is he to think that he can defeat one of the Antonii? Doesn't he know who I am? Uh, and I am uh, the consort of Queen Cleopatra, the heir of the Ptolemies, the heir of Alexander's marshal. Uh, plus, he really does have a great fleet and a lot of money. So um, I don't think he understands how dangerous the enemy is. So we've got, a, 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 it seems to me there are like three points, divergences that are, are open up at this, at this moment. Um, there's one in which uh, Rome continues to rule west and east. Um, which is right. which what will happen? What we know, um, we can get. Right. There will be some details. There'll be some rearranging the, uh, the the institutions and how that will be done. But that can go on. There, there's uh, what Antony almost then would have to do is rule the entire, almost a recreation of Alexander's empire, but one in which Western Europe and and North Africa are ruled as well. Uh, that would certainly be what he would like to do: is rule the world from Alexandria. I think so. I mean, I don't think he's going to give up Rome as a capital. He is still a Roman, but I think the empire will effectively have two capitals if, if Antony and Cleopatra wins. And and then there's um, the more likely scenario if, if if Anthony had been more successful, Anthony and Cleopatra, where the entire Mediterranean basin is divided in two, which you know it ha- has happened a lot during its uh, yeah. during its history. Yeah. Sure. Remember that in all in the entire history of the Mediterranean, there's only been one empire that's ruled it all, and that's Rome. That's the exception in human history, not the rule. Mm-hmm. So as you say, yeah, dividing it in two would be perfectly natural and make complete sense. So the break, um, the declaration of war, could you briefly discuss that before? He, sure. And then we're going to leave off here so that people can see the, the stunning conclusion. Then we'll talk about sources and methods, okay. and boring historiographical okay. stuff like so, that. Okay, so uh, the the Declaration of War comes in 32 BC, probably in the summer. And this is Octavian's really most brilliant and vicious stroke. He doesn't declare war on Antony. He has promised the Roman people after defeating Sextus Pompey that he will never engage in a civil war again, that the era of civil war is over. And declaring war on Antony would be difficult, even though Octavian has conveniently uh, claimed that he has uh, wrested Antony's will from the Vestal Virgins, which is strictly illegal, taking the will from them. And he claims that the will says that Antony wants to give away the store to Cleopatra and his now three children by Cleopatra. I'm very skeptical that it said any such thing. Uh, So what does Octavian do? He declares war on Cleopatra not on Antony, but on Cleopatra. He says that the queen of Egypt is Rome's enemy uh, and that she has bewitched um, the uh, noble Roman Mark Antony uh, and taken him away from his wife, uh, the noble Octavia. So Rome is going to go to war against Egypt, even though Egypt is a loyal client state, a loyal ally of Rome. So that's 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 the amazing fake news misinformation masterstroke that Octavian engages in. So uh, we'll stop there. Um, and right. but I I'm you know just so much of Roman interpretation. Well, 
Anthony has no, there are no pro-Anthony historians, as you make clear. So you have to read every source against the grain. I'd add to that, right. Cleopatra, um, from certainly this declaration of war and before that, attracts a great deal of Roman misogyny. And Roman, mis- right. Roman misogyny is of a particularly high-grade super octane. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's no real. I mean, I'm sure there are many competitors, yeah. but it's it it sort of they're they're all equal. So, right. h- how does one read a hostile source to put this together? Uh, well, you know, uh, all ancient historians are what we used to call Kremlinologists. We are trained in. Uh, reading between the lines of sources. If we can't do that, we're not any good at our job. Um, not all sources in ancient history are as hostile as the sources to Arta, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra. But in a way, all sources in ancient history are hostile. No one, none of them is neutral. They all, they all have an axe to grind, and we have to read through them. Uh, we do so by adducing other evidence whenever we've got it. And we do have a lot of other evidence for this. Cleopatra and Antony were just uh, absolute, uh, in, they're inveterate uh, minters of coins and uh, producers of propaganda. We have gazillions of coins from these folks, which tell us something about their image. Uh, we have some inscriptions. Uh, in Cleopatra's case, we might even have a papyrus that she signed. Hmm. Um, so uh, we have that. Antony published pamphlets um, giving his side of the story. And we have a few quotations of those that that survive. And, you know, every now and then you'll get something like the line from Tacitus that uh, is skeptical of the official uh, Augustan version. Uh, we have... Uh, the physical evidence of battlefields and at least uh, battle zones, combat zones, where we can go see, well, what might it have been like in antiquity? Um, uh, Given geological science, we have a pretty good idea of what these places were like in ancient times. Uh, There's this remarkable monument uh, outside of Actium, where Octavian's camp was, where his headquarters was. And uh, they put up uh, the rams from captured uh, Antonian uh, warships. And that tells us something about the size of the ships and perhaps the relative numbers of ships in Antony's fleet. Uh, and that allows us to read through some of the sources how, as well. How does that tell you something about the size of the work? How, how does that work? How do you, how, how does they're, one? They're different size, they're different size rams. So that's the, rams. that's the beaky part at the front of the warship. Yeah. They somehow yeah. mounted, they, yeah. they bolted these rams onto the, as trophies onto the face of the monument? No, they, they even better, uh, they, um, they chiseled spaces in the monument to put the rams and their holders in. Mm-hmm. We don't have the rams anymore, but we have those spaces and we can measure them. They've been measured. Um, so um, we can see the different sizes of the rams from the ships that were captured. I think there are there are 30 some odd rams that were up there and they give us, if we think these are in the same proportions as the ships, as the ships in Antony's fleet, we get some idea of how many big ships he had, how many small ships he had and mm-hmm. so on and, and so forth. So deducing, um, using the size of the, the ram to then deduce the displacement right. of the ship that has to be able to carry this correct. bronze correct. beak correct. on the front of it. Yeah. Correct, correct, correct. 
We now have something like 40 rams from ancient warships that have been discovered by underwater archaeological explorations. Uh, most of them were found very recently off the west coast of Sicily uh, from a battle in the Punic War between the Rome, first Punic War between the Romans and the Carthaginians. So material evidence comes to our uh, rescue very often. And you can't do ancient history nowadays without bringing in archaeology and material evidence. It's not just a literary evidence kind of thing. Also, one other thing, um, conveniently, the ancient sources, they don't cover their stories and they get caught in lies sometimes. So, you know, they'll, they'll tell one source will say, well, Octavian only had small, nimble ships, just as you'd expect from a freedom-loving Westerner. Whereas Antony and Cleopatra only had these big lumbering behemoths of ships, just as you'd expect from an Oriental despot. But then we learn from other sources, actually, Octavian had the same fleet that Agrippa used against um, um, uh, Sextus Pompey. And we know that that was a fleet of not small, nimble ships, but reasonably pretty big sized ships. So it's pretty clear that both Antony and Octavian have mostly typical um ships that you'd find in battles in this period, pretty big warships. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get back to, you, you just said, well, this is what all classical ancient historians know how to do. But I, I'm just, as I said to you before we started recording, um, right. increasingly um, research means finding someone on the internet who agrees with, our, with what I already believe. Um, <laughs> so uh, the temptation is, I mean, uh, <sighs> Everyone has this temptation. You're reading a source and you're looking for what you think it should say. Um, How does Barry Strauss fight against this inclination? Is there like a sort of ethical discipline that you put yourself under every morning or something like that? Cold showers, perhaps. Yeah, it's a great question. Confirmation bias. It's one of the biggest problems of the historical profession. Because as you will know, what happens when people get PhDs in history is they're going to study something. They're going to study... the bovine theme in James Joyce's um, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. So they read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, they look for, for cows, and they find lots of cows, and they say, see, I told you so. It's all about cows. And, you know, so there's your thesis. I wrote a paper on this when I was in high school. <laughs> That's why it's, I'll never forget it. It stuck with you. <laughs> it stuck with me. And that's wrong because you've got to say, okay, What's the other side of the story? And, you know, it's something I try to always get my undergraduates to do. An ASA is not one that makes an argument, but it's one that also takes the argument apart and anticipates the objections to the argument and says why the objections aren't uh, determinative, or maybe they are determinative. Also, for me personally, the, the mark of a good research project is everything I started thought when I started was wrong. <laughs> it, it ends up being really different than what I started out thinking. So, so to, how did that happen with this book? Did, I mean, did you think something different about Actium or about the whole, this whole, the whole triangle of Octavian and Antony and Cleopatra and, and how did it change? Sure, a bunch of different things. Well, I didn't understand how important Octavia was when I started out. Uh I mean, I thought she was an also-ran. And I didn't, you know, six months before the Battle of Actium, uh, Agrippa seized Antony and Cleopatra's most important supply base at a place called Methoni in the southwestern Peloponnese, maybe about 150, 200 miles south of Actium. Um, 
I didn't really understand how he did that and just what a coup that was. And one of the most, for me, the, one of the most fun things of writing this book was I got to work with Navy SEALs and other U.S. special ops people and naval people and say, okay, so, you know, how do you do an amphibious operation? And uh, they gave me all sorts of ideas. Some of their ideas just would never work in ancient times. So I had to throw them out. But at least they got me thinking about how that would work. And I hadn't understood just how significant that was and how gutsy it was. I also hadn't understood Antony and Cleopatra really were the favorites to win this war. I really disagree with those scholars who say, "Ah, there wasn't a chance, there wasn't a chance. Octavian had nothing to worry about. No, Antony and Cleopatra put on a pretty good show. To me, the problem was in the end, a failure of nerve, perhaps a failure of nerve and not invading Italy, which they should have done. Uh, perhaps a uh, disagreement between Antony and Cleopatra. Perhaps they were at, 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 at odds with each other. Perhaps Cleopatra didn't want to go to Italy, but they really had a chance to win the whole thing. Octavian was not fated to win. And so for me, the fun part of this project was just taking this apart and, and seeing, seeing all that. So it, it very much is then this is uh you're you're leading with your with your argument in the title this is the battle that created the Roman Empire it's not just uh it really is it, it because without it's, without it so many things I mean I I've come to both I, I'm both secretly fascinated by what if questions but at the same time I hate them and yeah. <laughs> because um but this is one of the the good ones where when you consider the alternative, if something, if Anthony and Cleopatra had won, they're so, if they had really won, if they had killed, if Octavian and Agrippa had died in the battle, which could have happened, um, then so many things change. You can't even, you have to throw up your hands and say, I have no idea what happens next. That's, that's how big a turning point Absol- it is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And by the way, even after the battle, Octavian almost dies in a storm at sea. Um, Anthony and Cleopatra still alive. Interesting to wonder what would have happened then. (laughs) My my guest today has been Barry Strauss. He is the author of The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. Barry, thanks so much for being with us again. My pleasure, Al. Thanks so much for having me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. 